Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1 will continue our study in this last book of the Bible that provides for us hope and comfort in the midst of a world that is lost and dying. My dad used to quote a commercial from when he was young. It was a a beer commercial, and the message of the commercial was, you can only live this life once, so go for the gusto. And at that time, when he watched that commercial, he was an unbeliever, um, but later the Lord saved him. And um, he pointed back to that commercial often to to give the sense of what our society uh, believes, the way that they often live. That uh, you can only live this life once, so get all you can in this life. Uh, make it make it count. Um, and as Christians, sometimes this world feels as if. It is the only thing that we're living for. It feels as if Satan has won the victory. And sometimes it even feels as if God is not there. And as a result of that feeling, our temptation is that it doesn't really matter how we live. We can live however we want to. Because, like the commercial stated, this world is all there is to live for. As the scriptures say, I believe in the Old Testament, it says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there's no point in the life to come, if there is no life to come, then eat, drink, and be merry. And that is exactly how not to persevere in the midst of trial and persecution. That is exactly how not to endure. Instead, as Christians, we, when we have feelings of defeat, we need to recognize what Christ has done for us. Okay, that's what we're going to do later in the Lord's Supper. We're going to remember what Christ had done had done for us. But also, we need to when we have these feelings of defeat, we we have to recognize what Christ will do for us. And that He will come to rescue us from final judgment. And if our eyes are fixed there on what Christ has done and what He will do, then it will help us to overcome those feelings of defeat. Now, the book of Revelation is written to be a blessing to us. In fact, it begins and ends. The first and last chapter chapter both include a promised blessing for those who read it. And in chapter 1 it says those who heed it or those who obey it. And so it's designed to be a blessing for us. And, And if we recognize the coming Savior, what He is doing, why He's waiting, then we'll be able to endure the persecution and ongoing tribulation that we face. Now, I don't know exactly what trial you may be going through right now, but I'm sure if you're like me, you have had those types of feelings of defeat. And yet Christ wants us to have hope, hope in Him. So let's read chapter 1, verses 9-20, through 20, because here Christ appears to John and gives John hope, and He wants John to pass this on to 
the, the, the Christians in the churches in Asia Minor and also to us. Chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because the word of God, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Christ offers hope here by coming to John in a vision. He wants to give John and his and the believing followers of Christ hope in the midst of a world that is full of suffering, trial, persecution, and even death. We begin in verses 9 through 11 by seeing the voice of Christ or hearing the voice of Christ if we're in John's shoes. John begins in verse 9 by identifying himself he doesn't identify himself as the apostle. He could say, kind of boast about his position. He doesn't say that he was the one whom Jesus loves, like he did in, in his Gospel of John. Nor does he call the people to whom he's writing peons or, or something as if he's better than them. Instead, notice how he refers to himself. I, John, your brother. He puts himself on the same plane as those to whom he is ministering, those who are under his watch, his care. And in the book of 1 John, he calls them his children in the sense that he is their father, their leader. And yet here he puts himself on the same plane with them, recognizing that in Jesus Christ there, there, is, there is really a flat line. There, there will be levels of authority certainly, but as far as equality, no one is, is any better than another because we're all deserving of God's wrath. And yet we've been saved through the power of Jesus Christ. But he goes on, not only your brother, but notice, and fellow partaker in three things. In the tribulation, and we could say fellow partaker in the kingdom, and 
fellow partaker in perseverance which are in Jesus. John shares three things. First, tribulation. The, the persecution as a result of their faith. I share in those things. In fact, at the time in which John is writing, he is on the island of Patmos. And according to history, it's likely that he was exiled there. Rome used this island as a, a, um, a means to, to, to put political criminals to, to, to allow them to stay there and they could no longer come off of that island or at least sometimes it was short-lived, which it seems to be the case in John. This island was a small island in the Aegean Sea southwest of modern Turkey and it was about 10 miles long by about 6 miles wide at the farthest point. Some people say it was only 24 square miles uh, altogether. And so it was a very small island full of criminals and certainly some guards to make sure that you did not escape. But you were just left there to do nothing. I mean, you, you couldn't really go anywhere. Um, and uh, here, John uses this as an opportunity to to write. But, but my point here is that John is saying that he is a fellow partaker in the tribulation. The tribulation that you churches are, are experiencing, I'm also experiencing because of my faith. And he'll tell us later that that's exactly why he's been imprisoned. But he says, I'm also a fellow partaker in the kingdom, verse 9. That, that this future kingdom of Christ that, that is coming, the specifically the 1,000-year reign of Christ. We'll learn about that later in Revelation. That, that Christ will come. Revelation chapter 20, I believe, is where the kingdom is talked about. He says, I'm a fellow partaker with you in that future kingdom. I will see you there. And then thirdly, a fellow partaker in endurance or perseverance. So, despite my persecution, my tribulation, my trial, I am enduring like you're enduring. So I'm a fellow partaker with you as well. And all of these come, John says, as a result of being in Christ. Did you see that? It says, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation kingdom perseverance, which are in Jesus. Because of our relationship to Jesus Christ, because of what Christ has already done, He's... he's uh, caused us, we could say, to be persecuted because He was persecuted. He said, if they hated Me, then what? They will also hate My disciples. They also will hate you. Okay, speaking of the world, Jesus is also responsible for the coming kingdom. He is the King of that coming kingdom. And so it makes sense for Him to be a part of that as well as the endurance. Jesus experienced these trials in the greatest degree and yet still endured, and so we can as well. Turn to Acts chapter 14, verse 22, because Paul here will actually start before verse 22, but turn to chapter 14. Here Paul is uh, preaching for the name of Christ, and we find out in verse 19 that he is stoned and dragged away and left for dead because of his preaching for Christ, standing up for the name of Christ. He's left for dead. They think he is dead. They drag him outside of the city. But, verse 20, while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. 
Okay, so here we would expect Paul. Okay, you just got stoned and left for dead. Probably bleeding profusely, has lots of bruises and breaks all over the place. These were not tiny little pebbles here. What they would often do is put a person at the bottom of a pit and take large stones and throw them on them so that they would feel the weight of them just uh, with the force of throwing it and also with gravity. So, very hard to survive something like this. Paul does survive. And notice what he does in verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul gets back up after having been left for dead, goes back into the city from which he was stoned and preaches again and then also goes to some other cities and preaches there as well. He's strengthening the souls of the one's disciples who had been made. But here is his conclusion at the end of verse 22. He says, Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It reminds me of the song that we sing on occasion. Should we be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize? and sail through bloody seas? As Christians, we should not be surprised when we have to suffer persecution. Paul says it as much. After having been stoned, he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It's not going to be easy as a follower of Christ. And so, uh, turn back to Revelation because John is trying to encourage the believers. He's not trying to discourage them. Here, here's the message that he's trying to explain to them. If we are, are, are um, headed for the kingdom, then we will suffer persecution. And if we're going to suffer persecution, then we must endure. Okay, that's how we can combine all three of those statements that John makes. If we're going to, to the kingdom, and if you're in Christ, you are, then you will suffer some sort of persecution. It may not be physical, but you will suffer persecution, and so you must endure. Now, John gives at the end of verse 9 the reason for why he was exiled to Patmos. Look at the end. It says, He was on the island called Patmos because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The reason I'm in Patmos, the reason I'm imprisoned there, is because of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I stood for the Word of God and I testified about Jesus and as a result, I was exiled to Patmos. And so it's at this point when Christ comes to him in a vision. And this is a state of, of spiritual ecstasy that we see in verse 10. It's, it's a trance. Uh, like state where he's able to see the events unfold before his eyes. Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. John is able to, to uh, feel or use all of his senses. He hears, we see here, the, the loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Later on, he will say that he 
sees Jesus in all of His beauty. And then when he, He falls down like a dead man in verse 17, Jesus puts His hand on Him so He feels and, and later on in the book, we'll, we'll uh, find out that he tastes the scroll. Um, the angel says, eat the scroll that you have before you. And he says it tastes like honey, but it's bitter in the stomach. And so he has all of his senses in play. It's some sort of a trance that, that the Spirit puts him into so that he can uh, identify and, and see the risen Christ, the glorified Christ, and also be able to see all these future events unfold. And so he says, while I was on Patmos, I was in this trance-like state. And he says it was on the Lord's day. Now, some would argue that this is referring to the day of the Lord. And if you remember from our study, the day of the the Lord is referring to that period of time between the tribulation, or not between, but including the tribulation and the millennium. That is, the final period of time before the eternal kingdom. And uh, that period is marked by, both, marked by both judgment, the tribulation, and blessing, the kingdom. And so some people would say that when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, it would be like him saying, on the day of the Lord. But that, that phrase, the day of the Lord, is never uh, used in the Scripture in this way where it said the Lord's day. It's always the day of the Lord. And so it's it's hard to take that. Uh, others would argue that this is referring to what you probably first thought of when you read it, and that is Sunday, the Lord's Day. Um, this phrase, however, is never used anywhere else in Scripture, so we don't have a lot of um, support for this being Sunday. But this is probably the first use of this phrase. John is is now coining, I guess you could say, a new phrase for the day Sunday, the Lord's Day. Because it was on that day that Christ raised from the dead. And it's on that day that the believers in Acts would meet together, right? And so this is the Lord's Day. This phrase would soon be adopted by many of the second century churches in church history. They would call it the Lord's Day, and that's why today you probably still use that word, that phrase on occasion. And so that's the way I would take it. That, that John is saying, I'm on the island of Patmos, imprisoned, and it was Sunday. And on Sunday, I, I was taken into a trance-like state to, to witness this risen Christ. Here's the surprise at the end of verse 10. He hears this loud voice. The very first sense that, that John notices is the sound of, of a voice. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Later on, he'll say it was like a voice of, of many waters. He, this probably just indicates that it's a very loud sound, that, that perhaps Jesus is coming in some sort of a regal announcement that I'm about to make a significant announcement here. But more likely, John is just trying to describe the noise that he heard. It was something like he hadn't heard before, so he tried to compare it to something that he knew. Like the sound of a blasting trumpet. It came. And notice, John is given a responsibility in verse 11 and 19. Verse 11 says, The voice said, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. 
So John has a responsibility. Write down what you are about to see. Write, write down what you're about to see in here. Put it in a book and then send it on to these churches. What, what Christ is saying is that He has a message for these churches. The churches that are listed here are the same seven churches that we're going to find out about in chapters 2 and 3. Jesus is going to send a specific message to each church and say, this is who I am. I know your deeds and, and this is how I condemn you. This is how I commend you. And this is how I challenge you. He's going to talk to these seven churches individually. But for now, he wants John to write down this message. Verse 19, we see the same, uh, same command or responsibility of John. Verse 19 says, Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. When we surveyed the entire book of Revelation, uh, a few weeks ago, I said that this verse 19 of chapter 1 is a summary for the whole book. Write the things which you have seen. That's chapter 1. Write the things which are. That's chapters 2 and 3. That's current church activity that's going on. Write the things which are. And then write the things which will soon take place. That's chapters 4 through 22. He wants... John to write all of these things down so that the church has a record of what's going to happen and the, the comfort and the, the encouragement that comes from knowing uh, the, the end of all things. So he hears the voice of Christ, but then he sees Him. Verses 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So he says, I, I, I saw the voice. I think that's just a figure of speech for saying, I saw what I was hearing before and, and I found out who it was. Um, John, interestingly enough, had already seen the veiled glory of Jesus Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that story where, where um, John and Peter and James went up to this mountain with Jesus and met there with Elijah and Moses? And they were able to see a portion of a veiled part of Christ's glory. And now John here sees Christ in all of His glory. He sees Him completely unveiled. And now John goes on to explain what He looks like. Now this is, you have to imagine that this is a very difficult task for John to, to take on to explain something of which he's never seen and never really seen anything like this before. And so he tries to explain it. The first thing that he says is that I saw one like a son of man. Do you see that in verse 13? In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. So in the, we'll find out later what, that these lampstands are the churches, but... But he saw inside of those, somehow among those lampstands, he sees this one like a son of man. What is he talking about there? Well, it probably helps for, for you to remember back when this phrase is used before in Scripture. Most recently, it's been used in the Gospels when Jesus uses that name of himself. We know Jesus as the Son of God. But he would often call himself the Son of what? Son of Man, which is what John refers to him here. I saw one like a son of man. In fact, Jesus 
favorite name for himself was the Son of Man. Man, He used it 81 times in the Gospels. And I don't think any of the Gospel writers used that of him. They only quoted him saying that about himself. And if we think back even further in our Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7 says that the Ancient of Days, God, will give the keys of the kingdom to the Son of Man. And so if you um, understand what's being said there, you understand that God is giving the authority of all of the earth and all the events of the future that are going to unfold. He's giving them to Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. And so when John turns around, he sees one like a Son of Man. But we also need to remember that Son of in the Scripture often simply means taking on the characteristics of so that uh, Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam, but they were the sons of Adam because they took on the characteristics of Adam. So that's why we can say of Jesus Christ that He was both the Son of God and the Son of Man because He took on the characteristics of both God and man. And that makes sense because He was both God and man. John's vision continues. He says, I saw one like a son of man, verse 13, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. A robe and a sash. It says that the robe reached all the way to the ground. It could indicate that that he was showing his priesthood, that Jesus was our priest. Um, a robe has been used in the Old Testament in, in that way. But it could also simply mean a high position of rule. Dignitaries in those days would also wear a robe and a sash. And so, um, in fact, angels are to have worn sashes, And so, but we would never say that angels are have any priestly duties. They simply are God's servants. So, we can't take this text to mean that, that robe and sash have to mean that he's showing his priesthood. Rather, I think simply think that it's referring to his high position of rule, that he is the king of all kings. Now, there are seven features that John points out in this vision. Number one, his head. He says, verse 14, his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow. This perhaps suggested uh, dignity. Like in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 31, it says that the 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 hair of an old man is his honor. Um, in other words, the the white hair that comes from an old man shows that he is he is uh, experienced and honorable, and he's a man of wisdom and dignity. That could be what it, or it could be purity. Um, that that the, the color of his hair indicates the purity that he has within him. But more likely, it's simply just a blazing light. Remember, Jesus, or, or I should say God in the Old Testament, was also often manifested as a glory cloud or as a bright light at night. And so it could very well be that, that Jesus just shows with great light and as a result, His hair is, is white. Um, and for John to explain it this way, you have to realize that there's no other way for him to uh, explain what perfect whiteness would be like other than saying like bright wool or like snow. 
The second characteristic that John points out, first his hair and his head. Secondly, he points out that his eyes were like a flame of fire. This probably refers to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. Let me read that for you. His body also was like beryl, his face in the appearance of lightning, had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Daniel here also sees a vision, and he sees a vision of the glorified Christ as well. And, and there we see some of the same characteristics that John points out. Eyes of flaming fire and feet of polished bronze. We'll see that here in a second. And also his sound was like the sound of a tumult. John calls it the sound of a trumpet or the sound of rushing water. Perhaps these eyes of fire were indicating some penetrating insight that he had. Um, later on in chapter 2, he's going to say, I know your deeds. I know what you're like. So it is true that Jesus does have all knowledge. He's omniscient. He, he can see everything. So he sees into these churches. He sees the problems. Um, it could be that. Um, it could be that he this flame of fire indicates his judgment that comes in First Corinthians three, verse thirteen. It says that that our works are going to be revealed by the fire of the Savior. And it could be that his eyes are the things that penetrate and burn up our our false works. And um, it's not uh, exactly clear why these symbols are here, but John's just explaining what they are. And then the the third thing is the feet polished like burnished bronze or polished bronze, which Daniel, the same thing that Daniel calls it. Perhaps this is speaking of Christ's crushing judgment that, that like bronze coming down, a heavy piece of bronze coming down on something, it would crush it. Uh, so is the feet. So are the feet of Jesus. And then the next thing that he points out, head, eyes, feet, and then his voice. His voice in um, verse 15. His voice was like the sound of many waters. I think John is indicating that his voice simply overpowers all that there is. That there's no excuses that we can make to this powerful voice. It would be like trying to, to speak to your neighbor while you're under the Niagara Falls. I mean, the sound of rushing water, John says, is what his voice is like. He overpowers us because He is the, the King of all. And then He goes on in verse 16 and He tells us what's in His hand. In His right hand, He held seven stars. Verse 20 tells us what these stars are. Look at the second part of verse 20. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. This signifies Christ's authority over them. He holds in His hands the angels of the seven churches. Now, I'm going to uh, argue when we get into these uh, churches next week that the angel of the church is actually the messenger of the church. It's not that there's some sort of guardian angel over each church here, but rather angel can also be translated messenger. I'll argue that next week. But the point here is that Jesus is holding in His hand, the seven stars. And, and John explains later, or Jesus explains later to John, that these seven stars are the messengers of these seven churches that He's going to send the letter to. 
And so Jesus is saying, I hold them. I have authority over them. I have complete control over them. They're in my right hand. And as we learn from John chapter 10, the right hand is the hand of power because no one can pluck them out of my Father's hand. My Father which gave them to me is greater than all. No one can take away your salvation. John goes on to point out two more things. At the end of verse 16 it says, His face... Uh, actually, I skipped over one. His mouth, and out of his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. This probably reminds you of Hebrews chapter 4, where we find that the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces even to the dividing sun- asunder of soul and spirit. That Christ, the basis for this judgment that will come on all people who oppose Him, is the Word of God. The Word of God is the standard of measure. And so out of His mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword which represents likely the Word of God. John's final uh, statement about this glorified Christ is that the end of verse 16, His face was like the sun shining in its strength. Try to imagine that for a second. He does notice something about his flaming fire of his eyes. He noticed a a, a sword coming out of his mouth. But he says in general, his face looked like it was so bright. It was like the, the brightness of the sun. His overall appearance overwhelmed John. And instead of John saying, hmm, wow, that was weird never seen anything like that. Notice how he responds in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I fell at his feet like a dead man. John was fearful of this glorified Christ. He falls to the lowest point on the floor as if he is no longer alive. He's got no... He has no muscles that are are held up above the ground. He falls like a dead man. And this is how we will see him. First John chapter three verse two says that we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. You will recognize him just like John recognized him. And your response likely will be the same as John's. Many times we picture the first moments that we have in heaven and it will be maybe a big hug to our uh, our Savior. But I would argue from this passage it's more likely that we're going to fall down like a dead man in worship of the risen, glorified Christ. Notice where Christ was standing in verse 12. At the end of the verse it says, And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. Christ is standing among the seven golden lampstands. you remember what we said those were? Look at verse 20, the very end of the verse. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. John turns around after hearing the voice. He turns around and he sees Christ, and he sees Him in the middle of these seven churches. The lampstand was an individual lamp that someone would put up on a, 
they would have shelves built into their walls that would hold the lampstand and and provide light for the entire room. And likely, what what these lampstands were were really symbolic of the light that was being shown into the world of of Gentile people. That that although the light and glory of Christ had been removed from the world and that He was murdered and taken up to heaven, now the, the little lampstands would provide the light of the glory of the Savior. That, that Christ's light would shine through the churches. And so, Christ commissions John in verses 17-19. through 19. After... Getting, uh, getting this vision of Christ, hearing His voice, Christ commissions John. John falls down like a, a dead man, we said in verse 17, and he probably acted like Moses did when he saw the burning bush and recognized that it was God. He hid his face from God because he was afraid to look. But Jesus comforts him, and He does it in three ways in verses 17 and 18. And he placed in the second part of the verse, and he placed his right hand on me and said, and said, "Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades." There's three ways that Christ comforts John in this fearful state that he's in. Number one, he places his hand on his shoulder, showing his mercy for John. Secondly, he says, don't be afraid. He tells them not to fear. And thirdly, he tells them who he is and what he has done. He says, I am the living one. Or first, he says, I am the first and the last. This points back to what God said about himself in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Jesus would say that later about himself in chapter 19. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The idea that I am from the first to the last. I am overall. I am the preeminent one. Next thing he says about himself is that I am the living one, the living God. In contrast to those dead gods that the pagans serve, I am the living one. I have died, but now I am alive forevermore. And and what he's saying to John and to us is that he lives for us. He didn't simply die for us, but he lives for us. And he goes on to explain that he now has the keys to the kingdom. Notice at the end of verse 18, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. This points us back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If you remember from our study with Dr. Dawson, that's when the Ancient of Days, God the Father, gives the keys of the kingdom to the Savior because He has conquered both death and Hades, as Jesus says here. He's conquered sin and death. So He has absolute control over over all those things. And so Christ now is able to enact judgment on all of the world that has opposed Him and His Father. Do you know why death cannot separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ? It's because God has power over death. That God has given that power over death to the Son. And so here's the message that I believe John is giving to us today in verses 9-20. through Christ is powerful and glorious. Did you notice that in His hearing of Christ's voice and His seeing of Christ's uh, person? Christ is powerful and glorious. 
He has survived the persecution and the death, and if you are in Him, you will do the same. This is the hope that we have from John today. Christ is powerful and glorious. He has survived the persecution and death, and if you are in Him, you will do the same. So you may feel defeated, but don't feel defeated. Be comforted in your struggle in the Christian life. And keep on fighting. Keep putting your confidence in the risen Christ. Keep looking for the near return of our Lord. Keep watching. Keep eliminating sin. Keep growing in your knowledge of God. Keep growing in your love for the Scriptures. Keep developing a hatred for sin and its consequences. Keep praying for those around you. Keep unifying yourself with those who are are around the Gospel. Keep denying ungodliness and worldly lust. And keep living soberly and righteously and godly in, in this present age. And keep setting your affections on things above and not on this earth. For your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. He was dead. He said to John, I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore. Christ is the first and the last. And He has the authority, the keys, over your suffering and your coming death. But you will conquer. You will overcome because He has overcome. Let's pray. Our great Father, we are thankful for this view of Christ that we can have through the writing of John. And we are amazed at the complete holiness of our Savior. And when we look at Christ in this way, in all of His glory, we certainly think about our own sin, how unworthy we are before His presence. And yet, we can have the same confidence as Christ gave to John, that we can stand before His presence not afraid, but rather boldly coming to His throne, to Your throne and and to Him because of the standing that we have in Him. That our righteousness is hidden with Christ. Our salvation is hidden with Christ in You. And so we're grateful for our Savior and for what He has done. Help us to fix our gaze on Him, on what He has done at the cross, as we will do shortly, and also what He will do when He comes in great power and glory, where the time of His mercy will have ended on those who oppose Him, and where He will make all things new, where He will triumph over sin and death, and will spare us from the judgment that is coming upon all the earth. We look forward to that day. We long for that day. We pray that that day would come quickly. But in the meantime, help us to endure the persecution that we suffer. Maybe it's some sort of physical affirmity that we have to face. Maybe it's some difficult family members or co-workers, ridicule that comes from uh, people around us in our neighborhood, Maybe it's uh, being 
eliminated from uh, being invited to certain things because of our relationship to Christ, but help us to endure these things for the sake of our Savior. We pray it in His name. Amen.